Welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, as we turn to your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us through it. We ask, Lord, that your spirit, he would be here, active among us, imparting life to your people. We ask all these things in the name of Christ and in humble anticipation that you will answer. Amen. Well, we've reached the end of uh, 12 weeks in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to try today to kind of put a nice little bow on the series for us since it's Christmas time, and also to go out with a bang. If you remember, Proverbs is all about the idea of wisdom. And wisdom we were defining as the art of godly, skillful living. There's this idea in it that it is both, our wisdom both includes skill, that you do have to be wise and shrewd in, in how you live throughout life, but there's also integral to that godliness. Morality is closely tied to the concept of wisdom. And so today's message looks at wisdom for sinners, and that includes every single person sitting in this room. All of us are sinners by nature and by choice. That means you are born into sin, and you also freely choose to sin. You love sin to an extent. And so we are inclined towards sin and away from God. And the book of Proverbs is designed to call us away from living that kind of life. Wisdom is meant to push us away from sin and to push us toward God. And so I have something really important uh, to tell you this morning. Something very profound and very nuanced. And so I want you all to listen very, very, very carefully. Don't miss this. Sin makes us stupid. It makes us thoroughly stupid. And sin has this double-edged sword to it, to us, is it not only makes us stupid, but it's deceptive in that it convinces us that as we engage in sin, that we're actually really, really smart when we do it. And then it also convinces us that even though we're guilty of sin, that we're really, really righteous when we do that. This is how stupid sin can make us. To put it another way, Our enemy, sin, is far beyond any one of us. If you're reading your Bible carefully at all, if you're paying attention at all, what you will see from Genesis 1 all the way through the end is that sin is far stronger than any of us. It's far greater than any of us. That we need someone greater than me to deal with it. And indeed, this is the message of Scripture. God must save us. 
So sin makes us thoroughly and completely stupid in a myriad of ways. And yet, we are told today, sin doesn't really exist, or that you're always right. You don't need advice from anyone else. You need to only be accepted and affirmed throughout your life. You can follow your own heart. You can lean on your own understanding. And that will make you happy. And if you think back throughout this series as we've, we've gone on from everything from pursuit of happiness to wisdom for men and women, parent and children, um, that that message from the world isn't working. Not only is it not working, it's painfully obvious that it's not working. This is how sin makes us thoroughly stupid. We didn't get to a place overnight where we don't know if truth exists and that we don't know the difference between men and women just like that. We got there slowly, but surely, through sin and its deceptive power. So I want you to listen very carefully to this verse. Proverbs 16.25 There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. You may think I'm going to be tongue-in-cheek here, but I'm, I'm actually not. I think every one of us should put that up in their house. This should be all of our life verse. Here, I'll be a little tongue-in-cheek. You should get this tattooed on your forehead. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. There is a way that looks good to you, and looks good to the world, and the path seems smooth, but its end is utter ruin and death. I do not think that Proverbs 16.25, when it talks about death, is primarily talking about physical death. All of us are going to die. The Lord doesn't come back. Everyone in this room will die. Rather, I think what Solomon is getting at here is a final, complete, and spiritual death in the lake of fire. So let me rephrase it this way. As unpopular as this may be today, this is what the universal church has taught for 2,000 years. There are not many paths to God. There are not many paths to paradise, to heaven. There is only one path, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, listen again. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. There is a way that seems right to this world, that there are many paths to God, but that way leads to death. I'm not standing out on a limb here. I'm not a lone voice in the wilderness of Christianity saying that. This is what the church has said for 2,000 years. This is what the Jewish people said before that. There's one way. And so I really think we should never, ever forget Proverbs 16, 25. Because sin can make us so stupid that we walk this path all the time, self-justified, assuming all the voices around us who sound nice are correct, but the end of that path is death. And so my question for you today is pretty straightforward. Are you walking on such a path this morning? If there's a way that seems right in our own head, that we think everything is going well, but it actually ends in death. Are you on that kind of a path today? When you factor into that the idea of the deceptiveness of sin and how it can trick you into thinking that you're all right, 
Are you on that kind of a path? And if you were, would you even notice? I mean, it is really, really easy to be duped, to justify our sins. And this leads to death. And really, this can go in so many different ways. I mean, if you, if again, if you're reading your Bible very carefully, like sin is so cunning and perverse, it can get us by saying, well, there is no right or wrong. Live however you want. That's one way sin does it. You know another way sin does it? It says, let's be super, super spiritual and invent all of these rights and then we'll prove how self-righteous we are by all the good works we do. Like Sin can take you in either direction. This is why Jesus spends so much time on those Pharisees in the New Testament. They were consumed by sin, but they couldn't see it. They were walking a path to death and they thought they were the most righteous people in the room. And so I ask the question again, are you on that kind of a path today? And how would you even know if you were? And so what can be done? Well, we're going to examine that, that question from the book of Proverbs today. And so in good pastor form, I have three points for you today. First, we're going to examine what God thinks about our sin from the book of Proverbs. Then we're going to look at how we should respond to our sin according to the book of Proverbs. And third, what has God done for us from the book of Proverbs and a little help elsewhere. So we'll start with this. What does God think of our sin? If you have your Bibles open, flip to Proverbs chapter 6. We'll look at verses 16 through 19. What you're going to see here is a consistent testimony in Proverbs, but also throughout all of Scripture. What does God think about sin? And we live in a time and an age where sin is treated with tolerance, and we've gotten past the point of just tolerating sin. Actually now, you must praise sin or else you're in trouble. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 tells us, point blank, what does God think about sin? The word of the Lord reads, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. I was driving down a street uh, this week in my neighborhood. I was driving by a, uh, I believe it was a Methodist church, which should tell you everything you need to know already. Uh, and the sign said, uh, something along the lines is, there is never, it is never okay to hate. And then you got passages like this. <laughs> there are six things that the Lord hates. Six things. Now, we are not God. We are sinners, so we have to temper this. You can't hate sin as purely as God does. But if you can't look at sin with a shred of honesty, you probably should just take down the sign and not be a church anymore. It took everything in me not to send the pastor an email. Maybe this week. But now there are six and seven things listed here, and that formula occurs throughout the book of Proverbs. Six and then seven communicates that this isn't just an exhaustive list. These aren't the only seven sins that God hates. But rather, in the Hebrew, when you do this, it's representative of a whole. Like this is the representative of an entire thing that's behind it. It's not narrowed to these seven. And so we have to stick with this point here that what Solomon is telling us is that God hates sin and he hates it through and through. God, in other words, 
stands completely and thoroughly opposed to every sin in thought and in deed. Everyone. This is the consistent teaching of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. God hates sin. Absolutely hates them all. And he particularly hates lying, murder, desiring, evil, spreading dissension, false witnesses. These are abominations. That word abomination is the strongest word you can use to communicate the highest degree of disgust and moral offense. These are not kind words, as we would say. This expresses an intense rejection and hatred of something. That is how God feels about your sin and mine. That is how God feels about all sin. And let me phrase this very, 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 very clearly. This is not some defect in God. This is not something you and I should feel ashamed of. This is not something that needs to be explained away. This is a reflection of God's perfect holiness, that He hates sin this much. Because you and I, we look at evils all the time. You and I look at evils all the time, especially when they happen to me, or someone I love, or someone I care about, and you hate them. And we struggle to hate them purely, because we're sinners and we're, we're not God, but we hate them. When somebody who's very clearly guilty of a crime, and he or she gets away with it, the people get upset. Why? Because you're made in the image of God, and you know that that's not right. And so, let's take a, a modern example again. Driving down the freeway this morning, and there was a a pro-Palestine billboard up. Uh, and it's just, just yeah. Um, the vile acts, if you've read or heard about them at all, the vile acts of Hamas towards civilians in Israel. If you can't hate those sins, even a little bit, there's something going wrong inside of you. Well, that does not mean you need to be consumed with it every day. You have to deal with life that is in front of you. But if we are indifferent towards evil, when we see its ugliness, its destructiveness, and its vileness, then there's something going wrong with us. We hate it when evil goes unchecked. And then for some reason, Christians feel embarrassed when God says the same thing. Whatever disdain you feel for such sins, whatever you want to think of, your own sin or someone else's sin that you've seen, whatever disdain you feel for that, I want you to know that not only does that reflect the image of God, but God hates that sin far more than you do. And he hates your sin far more than you hate sin outside of yourself. And so what does God think of sin? Does he view it as harmless? No. Does he view it as just kids having a little bit of fun and expressing themselves? No. God sees the sins of all of us individually, and culturally, and they are an abomination in his presence. And God rightly has an intense and burning and righteous hatred for it. And so we have to glean this implication from it. This means God will judge your sin. He will judge my sin. For God is a holy and righteous God. He is the creator and judge of all things. And as fools, we sin, and that brings consequences for us both in this life and the next. So what can sinners do? What can we do? That brings us to the verses that uh, Levi read to us 
this morning. Proverbs puts us in a dangerous position as sinners and as a God who hates sin. Proverbs 28, though, gives us three prescriptions. Three ways sinners should respond to their sin. What does wisdom tell, for us, or tell us to do about our sin? Well, wisdom, as I pointed out last time, we preached, or I preached on this book. Wisdom is not enough for salvation, but it does address sin. So Proverbs 28, 13. What's the first thing we should do? Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. First, confess your sins. We don't do this every week before the Lord's Supper just to fill a time slot. We don't do it just for fun. We do it because you need to do it more than just on Sunday morning. We must confess our sins, first of all to God, then to one another as the situation requires it. When you have actively wronged someone, when you have sinned against them, you must, by divine command, go and confess that sin. And this hints at a common temptation for all of us. Proverbs 18, or 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions, we want to conceal our transgressions. It's very natural to us. We want to hide our sin. And guess what? Our sin also wants us to hide our sin. For in secrecy, sin keeps its power over us. This is the way of mankind. We often try to both seek a way to hide our sin and to pay for it, to atone it, or atone for it. We do it in a lot of different ways. We can pretend, oh, that never happened. I'll just forget about it in a few weeks. She'll forget about it too. You could try to explain it away. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you wouldn't have done this. We try to atone for it by doing good works. Well, I know I was mean to this person, but maybe I'll just give them a really, really nice Christmas present and then they'll forgive me. I don't actually have to confess the sin. We have so many different ways we try to cleanse ourselves. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. What did they do when they sinned? What was the first thing they did? They hid and they tried to cover their shame with leaves. They tried to conceal it. They tried to conceal it from the all-knowing God. And guess what? It didn't work. There's a warning there for all of us. Those who conceal their sins, Proverbs says, will not prosper. And I think that is an intended double meaning. What does he mean they won't prosper if you conceal your sins? Well, first, you won't actually prosper in concealing your sins. The more sin takes root in your life, the more it... Um, the more you try to push it down and hide it, the more it becomes integral to your character and everyone sees it even though you don't admit it. You don't actually prosper in concealing it. The second part of the double meaning is that sin wrecks your life. You will not have a prosperous life. And please don't hear me saying health, wealth, and happiness forever. You will not have a prosperous life because you will be unwise if you conceal your sin. You will not excel in skillful, godly living. And so God has given us this prescription. How should I deal with my sin? I must confess it. I must label it what it is. I must call sin, sin. 
not just something that was inappropriate, not nice, unthoughtful. When I sin, I must call it what it is. Sin. And once we label our sin correctly in our heads and in our hearts, then we must confess, confess it to God and anyone that God requires us to do so. And then we must forsake that sin. The second prescription, how do we deal with our sin, is the fear of the Lord. Verse 14 of 28. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But who, whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. We are here again told to fear the Lord. Consistent theme throughout uh, the book of Proverbs. And this tells us quite clearly that when we are properly fearing the Lord, we won't have hard hearts and we won't fall into sin. Let me phrase it another way. When we are sinning, we are not fearing the Lord. When we know that God is holy, that he hates sin, that he is light and in him there is no darkness, then we do not sin. The fear of the Lord here includes reverence, but it's not limited to reverence. We are to go to the Lord in a full recognition of who he is. I get what people mean when, when they try to walk back fear of the Lord because they don't want you thinking that you should cower in fear before the Lord like, like he's about to execute you as a Christian, and there's some truth in that. But I think what the fear of the Lord is really getting at is that you should treat God as God. And if you are in the presence of the infinitely holy God, it's going to look a lot like Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm undone. This is the second prescription. Fear the Lord and live in accordance with that. This is contrasted with someone who hardens his heart. For one cannot look upon the infinitely holy, perfect, loving God of the universe and have a hard heart. The one with a hard heart is acting like he or she is God. And so in short, fear the Lord means to keep his commandments. If you were to uh, live under a monarchy and the king were to walk in and he were to give you a command to do it, proper fear and reverence of that king would mean you would jump right to it. You'd get to it. You'd be like, the king told me to do something, I, I better do it. How much more for God? Third prescription is to live in wisdom. Verse 26 of Proverbs 28. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. If you wish for life to go well for you, and you must not minimize your own sin, you must become wise and not be a fool. And that begins and circles around your entire life, not leaning on your own understanding. Don't trust your own mind. Don't follow your own heart. And don't surround yourself with people who will encourage you to do those things. Again, back to my profound point from the introduction, this will make you stupid. Thoroughly stupid. And I get that, uh, as a father, I tell my, my kids not to use that word. It's, it's used in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 12.1. 
Sin makes us stupid. Live wisely. Don't lean on your own understanding. And what this means at the heart of it is a discipline of not just reading the Bible, but really meditating on it. When I read the Bible, the first thing I need to do is to hold that thing up and measure my own thoughts and my own heart and my own action. When I'm doing that, I am fearing the Lord and not leaning on my own understanding. I am not starting at a place that Levi was right in everything he did. Because he wasn't. Wisdom begins with fearing the Lord by obeying his word. This is a call to humble faith. Not a turning inward to the self, but outward to the God who is there. And I I really want to stress this. The Protestant faith for the last 500 some years and really the faithful church for the last 2,000 years has always believed this. The Word of God has the power to save and to transform. It has the power to make you wise for godly, skillful living. This book has the power to change schools, to change communities, to heal broken families, to heal hopeless marriages, This book has the power to change the world. And if you've been paying attention at all, it has. God's word is not weak. It's not inefficient. It's that we have hard hearts. We think we know better than the word of God. Very few Christians actually say that. Then you bring the Bible to them and says, well, it says to do this. And you're like, well, you know, I don't want to do that. Sin makes us stupid. Lord, help our unbelief. And so we've seen so far our opposition, our God's opposition to sin, his commands for us to what to do with our sin as sinners. But there's still a really big missing ingredient here. What has God done? God must act. God is the judge. He's the innocent party. He's the offended one. We're the offenders. What has God done? And there are hints of this throughout the book of Proverbs. Consider these two verses, Proverbs 10.12 and 17.9. 10.12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. You should note that love in both of these verses motivates a covering of sin. This covering is forgiveness. We try to conceal our sin. We try to cover it in one way. But God, through love, has provided a different covering. His covering is better than the fig leaves of Adam or the religious rights of men and women or the self-justifications of a depraved and lost society. When God covers sin, it's gone. And he covers it with the blood of Christ. A blood we read in Hebrews that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's no coincidence that the most famous verse in Scripture is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. It is because of God's love that he has provided atonement or covering for our sin. 
His love is marked by ascending of His own Son to pay for the debt of others, to suffer wrath and to spill His blood to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you read John 3.16 in the context, you see a lot of different things. It speaks about how the world is already under condemnation. God didn't need to condemn the world. He didn't send the Son to condemn the world because it was already condemned. God's judgment was already there. But he sent, them, he sent him out of love. You read before this of the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. You want to get into the kingdom? You want to be forgiven? You have to be born again. Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. Jesus says this happens by the Spirit. And the Spirit cannot be controlled by man. But how? How is one born again? Well, Jesus says the Son of Man will be lifted up on a tree like the serpent in the wilderness, and anyone who looks upon him in faith will be saved. The cross is the measure of God's love. And his love leads to forgiveness and a cleansing of our sin. And this is why, Christian, you can confess your sins with confidence. You don't need to be righteous on your own. You don't need to feel like you need to explain your sin away. All you need to say is Jesus has covered that sin. It's done. It's forgiven. And moreover, this means that you and I who have had our sins forgiven must also walk in that kind of forgiveness. To put it plainly, Christians must freely repent among one another and also must freely forgive when repentance comes among one another. This is the wisdom of God that appears like foolishness. God forgives, you should too. Trust the blood of Christ to cover it all. And I think all of this is summarized well for us in Proverbs 16, 5-6. This is to put the little Christmas bow on it. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Listen to verse 6 again. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Arrogance is set against fearing the Lord, but there is this note about, about the steadfast love and faithfulness of God that will bring atonement. If you've been here a while, you've heard me talk about this before, but that word steadfast love, it's one word in the Hebrew. It is probably, not just probably, it is the most important word in the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew word chesed. It's a word that is notoriously difficult for us to translate from Hebrew into English because it carries so much theological weight and baggage with it. What it refers to is God's faithful covenantal love. This is the love of God expressed through his covenant to his people. And he does so with great faithfulness. That is to say that God's love and his covenant loyalty to his people will never end. He promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent's head would be crushed. God promised to send a son from the line of David who would be the king of the nations. And he did. 
God promised to save His people. And He has. And He is. And He will. God has covenanted with us, saying, I will remove your sins. I will cover them. And He has. What God has promised to do, He will do. And so atonement or forgiveness comes by the steadfast and faithful love of God through His covenant in Jesus Christ, sealed by the blood of Christ. God is faithful to the uttermost. Salvation comes from the Lord. The Lord incarnate. The same God who promised to come and who came in Christ has also promised that your sins will be forgiven. His steadfast love and faithfulness never fail. They never end. So we are called to respond to God's covenantal faithfulness with a faithfulness of our own. To fear God and to keep His commandments. To not lean on your own understanding, but to know that God is God and you are not. So here we see it again. What does it mean to live a skillful, godly life? In the most basic sense, it's a call to Christ and to treat Christ as God. To know that in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that in Him we see the love of God personified, and that in Him His blood seals us and covers us. This is the guarantee of God's faithfulness. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Therefore, people of Christ Bible Church, confess your sins. Therefore, walk in confidence. God has said they are forgiven. And they are forgiven. Therefore, grow in Christ your wisdom. Therefore, live godly, skillful lives revolved around the fear of the Lord and knowing His Word. God has provided a way of salvation. What is the word for sinners? It is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord saves. And this is all of our hope in life and death. Christ has been faithful unto death. Christ came. Christ died. Christ rose again. Christ ascended. Christ reigns. And Christ is coming back. Salvation is the Lord's. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning that your faithfulness is great and that salvation is not accomplished through the will of men or the acts of men, but through the will of God, through the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we celebrate his coming during Christmas, may we again be humble in our hearts and in our minds. May we not be self-righteous. May we not give in to the deceptions of sin but may we live in the surety of your faithfulness that you have sealed us by the blood of Christ and that you have given us your spirit that we may walk in faith. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it He sustains it, and He is reconciling it all to Himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.